Hello and welcome back to the fall of the Roman Empire. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 44 called All Gaul, A Single Funeral Pyre. We've now reached what were perhaps the most critical four years in Rome's entire history. These were the years from 407 to 410 when there was a sudden spiral towards disaster culminating in the sack of Rome. So, it seems curious that when we finished the last episode, Stilicho, the commander-in-chief of the Western Army, was at the very pinnacle of his success, having comprehensively defeated two Gothic invasions of Italy, the first by Alaric and the second by Radagaisus. But one of the reasons for the disaster that was about to unfold was Stilicho's treatment of Alaric. You'll remember that with Radagaisus, he executed him and recruited 12,000 of his followers into the Roman army. But his treatment of Alaric was completely different. Not only did he allow him to survive, but he even lent him his support by giving him a position within the empire as the governor of Western Illyria. Now, clearly, with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that this was a colossal mistake. So, the question has to be, just what did Stilicho think he was doing? A lot of scholarly ink has been spilt on this, and a wide variety of answers have been suggested. One, even put forward by a Roman chronicler at the time, was that the two of them were actually in league. However, I think that's almost certainly incorrect, because it's really based on just one reason, which is that they were both barbarian generals. But that doesn't seem convincing to me, because Stilicho was actually half Roman. His mother was Roman, while his father was a vandal employed in the regular Roman army. And his entire career was spent working as a Roman general. This was very, very different from Alaric, who was a genuine outsider to the Roman world and who seemed to live in a sort of twilight existence, on the one hand cultivating his identity as king of the Goths, but also attracted to the trappings of Roman power and the kudos of being recognised as a Roman commander. And we'll encounter more of this barbarian interest in being Romanized as we progress through the 5th century and witness the creation of barbarian success states really pretending to be inheritors of the Roman Empire. So it seems unlikely that Stilicho and Alaric regarded each other as kindred spirits. More convincing is that Stilicho simply saw Alaric as a means of furthering his own ambition to control the Eastern Empire. You'll remember that this had been one of his main objectives ever since the Emperor Theodosius died in 395. Now in 404, with the powerful Empress Eudocia's unexpected death from a miscarriage, as mentioned in the last episode, and the absence of any strong ministers in Constantinople, the way seemed open for Stilicho, or at least that's what he thought, for he demanded the return of the eastern half of Illyria to the Western Empire. You may recall that Illyria had become a bone of contention between East and West when the Western Emperor Gratian gave it to the young Emperor Theodosius I in the aftermath of the Battle of Adrianople. Half of it had then been returned to the West as a goodwill gesture by the Empress Eudocia, and now Stilicho wanted the rest of it. 
Oh, and by the way, if you're wondering exactly where Illyria was, it was basically the western half of the Balkans, so covering modern-day Croatia, Slovenia, and much of Serbia, as well as Macedonia and Montenegro. You can see a map of it and all the provinces of the Roman Empire in my book called The Roman Revolution, which I published just a few months ago, and which is available on Amazon. Apologies for that quick plug. But Stilicho underestimated Arcadius's new first minister, Anthemius, who proved he was no pushover and rejected his claim. Stilicho then declared war on the Eastern Empire, and he enlisted the help of Alaric, who was, of course, now his supposed ally. Now, you might well ask, what on earth did Stilicho think he was doing? Civil war between East and West was not exactly a very smart idea especially when the empire was in the throes of barbarian invasions. In addition, using Alaric, the Gothic king, who had terrorised Italy only a few years before, to fight Romans in the east was not a good way for Stilicho to advertise himself as a Roman upholding Roman civilization. So what was really going on? Well, historians remain divided in their views on Stilicho, but it seems to me that his real motive was probably to kill two birds with one stone. First, he genuinely did want the whole of Illyria, since it was strategically important, commanding the main route into Italy from the east, and one which both Alaric and Radagaisus had recently used for their invasions. Second, it was a good way of persuading Alaric to side with him, since Alaric was only too happy to fight the Eastern Romans who had alienated him when they became anti-German and ousted their own Gothic generals. And you also need to remember that at this point Stilicho was in a very powerful position because his army had been bolstered by Radagaisus's 12,000 Goths, So he must have thought his hour had come, and Alaric was certainly willing to play along with Stilicho's game. In late 406, he marched south to Epirus, just opposite the Italian coastline, where he waited for the Western Roman army to cross the Adriatic and then march on Constantinople. Now, Stilicho probably assumed that when confronted with such a powerful Romano-Gothic army, the eastern emperor Arcadius would simply cave in and give him Illyria and perhaps even agree to recognise him as his guardian. And he might well have been right. His dream for mastery over the whole Roman Empire must have seemed within his grasp. But how often in history has defeat been snatched from the jaws of victory? And that's exactly what happened now. For just as Stilicho was poised to achieve his dream, he was completely caught out by an event that very quickly led to his downfall. And that event is reputed to have occurred on December the 31st, AD 406, when a huge Germanic invasion of Gaul was unleashed. Edward Gibbon famously said that vast numbers of Germans crossed the frozen Rhine on the night of the 31st of December and thereby began the fall of the Western Roman Empire. In fact, there's no Roman or any other source that actually mentions the Rhine freezing that night, so Gibbon has made that up. Although he is right, the Roman sources say the Rhine occasionally did freeze over. The truth is more likely to be that the German hordes crossed the Rhine over several days in December using the various Roman bridges. 
However, Gibbon can be forgiven his poetic license for dramatising this event since it was a genuinely pivotal turning point in the whole history of the Roman Empire. The invaders were a diverse collection of tribes, including two groups of Vandals, the Asding and Siling tribes, and a large group of Alans, who, as I've mentioned previously, were not in fact Germanic, but an Iranian nomadic tribe, who nevertheless seem to have merged very successfully with the Germans, something which has caused historians a lot of headaches trying to understand how on earth that happened, as well as a group called the Suevi by the Romans, which probably referred to a collection of Alemanni and Burgundians, although the majority of both of these German peoples, in fact, seem to have remained east of the Rhine. Similar to the migrations of Fritigan's Goths in 376 and Radagaisus's Goths in 405 to 406, this Germanic onslaught was not a raid with the intention of taking plunder, but a proper migration of men, women and children. This time, the intention was to settle on Roman territory, in a repeat of what Alaric's Goths had achieved in Illyria, although I doubt the Germans were consciously copying the Goths. So, why did this invasion happen, and why at this particular moment? Well, there seem to be two reasons. First, as I mentioned in the last episode, historians now believe that our friends the Huns were yet again the main culprit. I described in the last episode how Radagaisus's invasion of Italy in 405-6, to which was so successfully defeated by Stilicho, is now thought to have been caused by the Huns' westward migration from the area around the Black Sea in what is today modern Ukraine towards the Carpathian Mountains in modern Romania. The fact that Radagaisus's Goths invaded Italy 800 miles further west than Thrace, which was the region Fritigan's Goths had invaded back in 376, shows how far west the Huns had pushed the Germans in the space of 30 years. The second question is why were they able to cross the Rhine and invade Gaul apparently without any major Roman opposition? There are two reasons for this, both critically important to explain the fall of the Western Roman Empire. The first one is largely unrecorded in written sources and is only discernible by actually digging into the past, quite literally. For modern archaeology indicates a significant decline in villa building in northeastern Gaul in the late 4th century. And this suggests that the Romans had largely abandoned the area by the early 5th century. The reason for this, at first somewhat startling event, seems to lie with a transfer of power from the Romans to the Franks. This appears to have been a long drawn out process beginning in Constantius II's reign when the usurper Magnentius took troops from the lower Rhine frontier to fight in the civil war of AD 350. This allowed the Franks to establish their first foothold across the Rhine, prompting Constantius to send his nephew Julian to restore order. Although the Future Emperor Julian was remarkably successful at restoring Roman authority in Gaul. He probably allowed some of the Franks to remain west of the Rhine, provided they defended the frontier against other German tribes. 
Julian may well have regarded this as a temporary expedient required so that he could free up sufficient Roman forces to fight Constantius. But with Julian's defeat in Persia, it seems that the Franks stayed in the top northeastern corner of the empire from the 350s onwards and gradually extended their sphere of influence. This didn't stop the Romans from re-emphasising their control of the Rhine frontier south of the Frankish enclave by making, for example, Trier into a large fortified city right on the German border. Indeed, today, Trier boasts the best Roman remains north of the Alps in testimony to its size and grandeur during the late Roman period. For example, during Valentinian I's reign from 364 to 375, it even became the de facto capital of the Western Empire, especially when he campaigned frequently along the Upper Rhine to keep the German tribes at bay. But in the later 4th century, Trier was de-emphasised as the Romans started to withdraw south. By the early 5th century, Trier was officially abandoned for a new Gallic capital at Arles in modern Provence, which was 400 miles to the south. Indeed, even before then, the court of the insignificant Western Emperor Valentinian II, who ruled between 375 to 392, had moved to Vienne, very close to Lyon, or as the Romans called it, Lugdunum, which was almost midway between Trier and Arles. The blame for this gradual Roman withdrawal from Gaul must be laid at the feet of both Theodosius and Stilicho. Before them, the emperors Julian and Valentinian I had fought hard to maintain the Roman frontier along the Rhine. But the rot really set in during Theodosius's reign. The two rebellions he faced, the first by Maximus, if you recall that one, and the second by Arbogast and Eugenius, both originated in Gaul and partly reflected Romano-Gallic dissatisfaction with the lack of support from the imperial centre. After all, if they were paying taxes to Milan, they expected something back in return. The ensuing civil war led to the second reason why the Germanic hordes of 406 found it so easy to breach the Roman frontier. And this was because the Roman army in Gaul had withered away. Again, the reasons for this lie largely within Theodosius's reign and the debilitating civil wars that he fought. It should be remembered that the Gallic army had been the pride of the Emperor Julian's military machine. Not only had it defeated the Alemanni at Strasbourg in 357, but Julian led most of it to Persia, where it acquitted itself well, although it was no doubt gravely weakened by the failure of the campaign. And it was weakened further by the two civil wars in Theodosius's reign, when Maximus and Arbogast both led it east, and both times it suffered costly defeats. In particular, it seems likely that the Battle of the Frigidus River in 394 was its death knell. We know that this was a huge battle, and that the Goths suffered large casualties, maybe 10,000 dead on the first day. And they were almost certainly fighting the Gallic army, which defeated them on that first day. And it was not until, as you will recall from episode 40, that Theodosius was lucky with both the unexpected defection of part of the Western army and then the strange weather on the second day of the battle, both of which helped him to achieve a surprise victory. 
So, coming back to the invasion of 406, not only was the Gallic army greatly reduced from what it had been when it triumphed at the Battle of Strasbourg, but on top of that, Stilicho had actually transferred much of what remained of it to Italy to fight Alaric in 401-2, and then to fight Radagaisus in 405-6. So, there really were very few troops left in Gaul to oppose the Germans. The result was that the Roman frontier troops were simply overwhelmed. There's no surviving record of exactly what happened. The best that we have are fragments from the writings of some Christian Gallic poets who bewailed the unfolding disaster as marking the end of civilization. Most famous of these is the often quoted one-liner from Orientus, who said that, quote, all Gaul was filled with the smoke of a single funeral pyre, end quote. Another poet believed that the end of the world was nigh and described the invasion as the collapse of, quote, the frame of the fragile world, end quote. Saint Jerome wrote that almost all the main Gallic towns and cities were destroyed, except for those in Roman Provence. Mainz on the Rhine frontier was the first to go, followed by Reims. It seems, however, that the former Gallic capital of Trier might have held out, helped by its enormous walls. The invaders then moved into central Gaul, sacking Tournai, Arras, Amiens and Paris. I will give the modern French names of these Roman cities since they're easier to identify. Then they moved both west and south, sacking Orléans, Tours and Toulouse. By 409, after spending over two years devastating Gaul, this group of Vandals, Alans and Swaby had actually reached Spain. There they crossed the Pyrenees and, exhausted by their long journey of destruction, they settled down in Spain. Again, there were no Roman defenders who could withstand them, so they progressed right through Spain to the Straits of Gibraltar, where they stopped. If they'd been able to find boats to ferry them across to Africa, then they would probably have done that, just as the Vandals would do two decades later. But for the time being, they partitioned Spain between them, with the Alans taking the centre, while the Hasting Vandals and the Swaby occupied the north, and the Siding Vandals the south. And as if the devastation and loss of Gaul and Spain was not bad enough for the Western Empire. Back in 407, when the German invaders were still wrecking Gaul, there was also a rebellion in Britain. Britain was a peculiar part of the late Roman Empire since it had avoided the devastation of the crisis of the 3rd century, and although it had always been somewhat of an economic backwater, it emerged into the 4th century as one of the more prosperous regions of the empire. It was also particularly prone to revolt because it was often left out of the inner circle of imperial decision-making and consequently really participated in the distribution of donatives and rewards by which emperors kept their generals and administrators loyal. Indeed, it seems likely that the British legions had not been paid, which was probably the reason for a rebellion by the army in the autumn of 406, just before the Germanic onslaught on the Rhine. 
the British legions proclaimed two officers emperor in quick succession, one called Marcus and the other Gratian, both of whom were rapidly rejected and executed before choosing Flavius Claudius Constantinus as emperor and naming him Constantine III. Constantine III quickly proved himself a very capable leader, although little is known about his early life other than that he was an experienced soldier. His name, Constantine, was said to have been part of his attraction since it reminded the legionaries of Constantine the Great, who the British legions had proclaimed emperor in York 101 years before, in AD 306. Constantine III crossed over to Gaul, where what remained of the Gallic legions immediately rallied to his standard. The Roman authorities in Spain also declared their support for him. The Western Empire was now split, with Britain, Gaul and Spain breaking away, just as they'd done in the crisis of the 3rd century under Posthumus. Constantine then led his troops to victory in a number of minor engagements with the Germans, which accelerated their departure from Gaul and their move in Spain. He also formed alliances with the Franks, Alemanni and Burgundian tribes who'd been hostile to the German invasion of Gaul. Indeed, the Franks were quite happy defending their northeastern corner against the Germans. All in all, Constantine III, just like Posthumus, had shown that a breakaway Roman state could salvage something from the chaos of invasion. For Stilicho, the developments in Gaul seemed to have struck him like a bolt from the blue. Quite how he could have been so unaware of the fragile condition of the Rhine frontier remains a mystery. After all, it was he who'd withdrawn some of the Roman legions from it to protect Italy, and he must have realised that it would leave Gaul vulnerable. The only plausible explanation is that he really didn't view the defence of Gaul as anywhere near as important as that of Italy, nor did he regard it as important as playing power politics with the Eastern Empire. This proved to be a very serious error of judgment, for not only were most of Gaul and Spain devastated and no longer paying taxes to Ravenna, but they also had a rival emperor to Honorius in the form of Constantine III. Stilicho immediately cancelled his planned invasion of the east and began transferring his Italian legions from the Adriatic to the Alps to meet any attack that Constantine III might make into Italy. Honorius sent letters to his brother Arcadius in Constantinople apologising for Stilicho's aggressive demands and begging for a resumption of peace between the two halves of the empire. These letters were probably actually directed by Stilicho himself to try to head off any attack from the east. Stilicho's obsession with securing authority over the Eastern Empire had backfired on him in a spectacular fashion. The Western Empire was now critically weakened, a rival to Honorius had been created, and that was not all, for Alaric now saw an opportunity for himself. With the Western Empire in chaos, he judged that he could hold it to ransom. Through his own incompetence, not only were Stilicho's days numbered, but those of the Western Empire itself were also counting down. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, of course, I'd be delighted for any ratings or reviews in whichever podcast app you use. 
And we're now in the final years, leading to one of the most significant events in world history, the sack of Rome in AD 410. Stay tuned for this in the episode next week. Thanks for listening and see you next time. 